0: This is Ethan Siegel and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. When Edwin Hubble observed that the farther away a galaxy was, the faster it appeared to be moving away from us, this brought up a fascinating possibility. Not only did we have evidence that the universe was expanding, that the fabric of space itself was getting stretched as things were moving farther and farther apart from one another over time, but that... It's possible if things were expanding today that the universe was getting larger as time went on, that it was smaller in the past. That if we went farther and farther back in time, we would discover that not only was the universe smaller in size, but that because the energy of a photon, that because the energy of each particle of light is determined by its wavelength, then as the universe was smaller and smaller in the past, then the wavelengths of these particles of light was smaller and therefore more energetic. In other words, not only was the universe denser in the past, but perhaps it was hotter as well. If this model were true, if the Big Bang were true, what would this mean? If we extrapolate back into the past, it would mean we would come to a time where the wavelength of this light was so short, where temperatures and energies were so high that it would be impossible to form and maintain neutral atoms, that every time an electron found itself bound to an atomic nucleus, it would be immediately struck by a photon and ionized the transition from where the universe cooled through this hot phase where you only had a plasma to a cooler phase where you then had neutral atoms for the first time means that these photons that were before colliding with electrons were now released to us, could now travel in a straight line unperturbed, and unaffected by anything except the universe's expansion. We would see that today as this leftover glow, uniform in all directions on the sky, as the cosmic microwave background. It was the discovery of this microwave background back in the 1960s that led to the overwhelming acceptance of the Big Bang. But we don't have to stop there. We can go back even farther. We can go back to when the wavelength was so tiny that atomic nuclei couldn't form, that they would be blasted apart into protons and neutrons. And when we transition through that temperature from where it's too hot to have bound nuclei to where you finally can have bound nuclei, That gives us a specific prediction for the abundance of the light elements for hydrogen, deuterium, tritium, helium-3, helium-4, and even some isotopes of lithium and beryllium. That those isotopes match the predictions from Big Bang nucleosynthesis today is another piece of evidence that this Big Bang picture is correct. But if we go back even earlier, We can find a time where photons are so energetic, where particles have so much energy that when they collide, they spontaneously produce particle and antiparticle pairs. But this actually poses a problem. If we say the universe was hot enough to produce particle-antiparticle pairs, and then we come forward in time to where it's not hot enough to produce particle-antiparticle pairs, what happens? the particles and antiparticles will find each other and annihilate and, through Einstein's z e equals mc squared, will become pure energy again. In other words, the laws of physics are symmetric between matter and antimatter. This is a problem because the universe we observe is asymmetric. Everywhere we look, galaxies are made out of matter and not antimatter. So how did this happen, if the laws of physics are symmetric between matter and antimatter? And our universe that we see contains matter, way more than antimatter. In fact, as far as we can tell, there are about 10,000 matter particles for every one antimatter particle that we have in the universe. So how did we get this? This is what we call the problem of baryogenesis, or how did we create more matter, predominantly made out of baryons, things like protons and neutrons, than antimatter? Well, if we want to solve this problem, it was shown in 1968 by the Soviet physicist Andrei Sakharov that there are only three things you need to happen. One is you need the universe to be in an out-of-equilibrium state. Two is that you need for two fundamental particle properties, C, or charge conjugation, and CP, or the combination of charge conjugation and parity, to both be violated. And finally, you need baryon non-conservation. You need interactions that can violate baryon number and create more baryons than antibaryons. Let's go into each of these three things for just a minute and explain what we really need and how that creates more matter than antimatter. The first thing we need for the universe to be in an out-of-equilibrium state is actually incredibly easy. In many ways the universe is the ultimate out-of-equilibrium system. Equilibrium, remember, is the state of having Everything in a system have the same general properties of saying, for example, if I turned on a heater in one corner of a closed room, when the heater was first turned on and the room is cold, that system is out of equilibrium. It requires that the heat diffuse from one corner of the room to the other. But when all the gas in the room has reached the same temperature, that's in equilibrium. Well, as the universe cools from this incredibly hot, dense state and expands into this cooler, less dense state, that's an out-of-equilibrium system. You start, for instance, by creating matter-antimatter pairs, and then as the universe cools, those pairs can no longer be created. They either decay away or find each other and annihilate. That's out of equilibrium. So the first one, just by having our hot, dense, expanding universe, we automatically fulfill that. Problem solved. What about C and CP violation? Imagine you've got a particle, and this particle is unstable. It spins in a certain orientation, and when it decays, it decays along one axis. So if you take your left hand and you curl your fingers in the direction that that particle spins, then maybe it will decay along the direction your thumb points. That's an example of what we call a chiral particle. a a particle that has a preferred handedness. These occur all the time in nature. What if you wanted to replace this particle with an antiparticle? Well, that's easy to do. Instead of, for example, a neutrino, you have an antineutrino. Instead of a neutron, you have an antineutron. If C is conserved, then that would mean when the neutron spins according to your left hand and it spins in that same direction your fingers curl. Perhaps it would decay into particles along that same direction of your thumb. If it obeys that, then C is conserved. If it doesn't do that, then C is violated. Many particles like an unstable meson called the kaon that violates C. CP is the combination of replacing particles with antiparticles, that's the C part, and P is reflecting it into a mirror. So, if you imagine, well, if I have my left hand and my right hand, these are mirror images of one another. So, CP would be saying I have a neutron that spins according to my left hand and then decays in the direction my thumb points, while CP is I have an antineutron that spins according to my right hand and then decays in the direction of the thumb. So, if C and Cp are both violated, then you have met this second Sakharov condition. And there are particles that do that too. mesons with strange quarks, charm quarks, and bottom quarks have all been observed to do this. Protons and neutrons are only made up of up and down quarks, and as far as we can tell, they don't do this. But other particles that are made up of these more exotic quarks, they do. What about that third one? What about baryon non conservation? Well, that would mean that we have a reaction that starts with a certain number of protons, neutrons, or heavier or unstable baryons. And then we subtract the number of all those antiprotons, antineutrons, and unstable antibaryons. And whatever we're left with. That's the number of baryons we have. We've so far never observed a reaction where we wind up with more or fewer baryons than we started with. But in theory, according to the standard model, it's possible. In our standard model, we have lots of out of equilibrium conditions, we have a little bit of C and Cp violation, and we have only theoretically allowed very small amounts of baryon non-conservation. We can't violate B, baryon number, without also violating L, lepton number, an equal amount. In theory, in the standard model, you can get a little bit of it. But if we ask in the standard picture of the universe how much baryon non-conservation does that give us? How much baryogenesis does that give us? And what sort of amount of matter over antimatter would we expect to have? It's about 10 billion times too little for what we currently observe. So we know that something must have happened at some early stage to greatly increase the amount of baryon non-conservation the universe has and possibly we need something to also increase the amount of C and CP violation we have as well. I said that this must happen at some early stage. How do we know this happened early on and not late? The answer is something we just talked about. It's Big Bang Nucleosynthesis. That explicit ratio we see of hydrogen to deuterium to helium-3 to helium-4 to lithium-7 that we have today If you have baryogenesis happen at late times, if you have baryon non-conservation or extra C and CP violation, that would mess up Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So the fact that we see the abundance of the light elements that we do tells us any baryogenesis that occurred must have happened before Big Bang Nucleosynthesis, it must have happened at some early time when the universe was less than one second old. There are currently four leading ideas as to how we could make a matter-antimatter asymmetry. It's worth noting these are not exhaustive, these are just four of the best ideas we've had so far. One of them is that there could be new electroweak physics, which could possibly be probed by the Large Hadron Collider. A second is a scenario called leptogenesis, where early on in the universe, you can make more leptons than antileptons, which, through these baryon minus lepton number conserving interactions, get partly converted into a baryon asymmetry later on, giving rise to more protons and neutrons than antiprotons and antineutrons. A third scenario is called Affleck-Dyne baryogenesis, named after Ian Affleck and Michael Dyne. This is an example of what happens in supersymmetry, which is, again, possible to be probed at the LHC. And finally, there's an example that baryogenesis could happen in grand unified theories, all the way up at energies of around 10 to the 15 giga electron volts, or almost a trillion times higher than what the LHC can reach. At these energies, the strong force is theorized to unify with the electromagnetic and the weak forces as well. If that happens, then extra particles exist, including some of which could be responsible for baryogenesis. Let's explore each of these four scenarios in detail. There's an energy scale called the Electroweak Scale. Below that scale, we have four fundamental forces, gravity, the strong force, which holds protons and neutrons together, the weak nuclear force, which is responsible for radioactive decay, and the electromagnetic force. Well, if we live below this energy scale, all four of these forces are independent and we see them wherever we look. But above that energy scale, above about 100 giga electron volts, when we view the universe there are only three fundamental forces as the electromagnetic and weak forces will have unified into a single force known as the electroweak force. We know that new particles exist at the electroweak scale like the Higgs boson, like the W and Z bosons. These are part of the standard model, but In almost every extension to the standard model, we have new particles there. We have new interactions there. And if the right kinds of new particles and interactions exist there, which can happen in extra dimension theories, in supersymmetric theories, and in lots of extensions to the standard model, then the transition through that scale When the universe cools and that symmetry breaks, it could significantly increase the violation of baryon number, leading to the creation of all the matter and not antimatter we observe today. If this is the correct scenario, the LHC during the current run, during run 2, should find evidence of it. A second pathway would occur at very high energies and is known as leptogenesis. We've already mentioned that in the standard model, you can violate baryon number so long as you violate lepton number by an equal amount. It might be difficult, as our best understanding shows, to create a large baryon asymmetry but it might be much easier to create a large lepton asymmetry and then to convert that into baryons. Right now, the standard model as we understand it contains neutrinos and antineutrinos as leptons, but they possess what appear to be two very odd properties. Neutrinos and antineutrinos all have an intrinsic angular momentum to them, a handedness known colloquially as spin. Again, if you point your thumb in the direction of their motion and curl your fingers in the direction that they spin around, that's a good visualization of what this intrinsic angular momentum is. You would expect that you'd have some left handed neutrinos and some right handed neutrinos. You'd have some left handed antineutrinos and some right handed antineutrinos. Yet when we observe these particles, we find that all neutrinos are left handed while all antineutrinos are right handed. And finally, we find that they both have very, very small but non zero masses. The masses of the neutrinos and antineutrinos are more than a million times lighter than the next lightest known particle, the electron. And there's no good explanation without having new particles. So one solution to all of these conundrums would be to postulate a new very heavy right-handed neutrino and a new very heavy left-handed antineutrino that were created in great numbers in the universe early on. If these particles then decayed, they could create a lepton asymmetry, which could then get converted into a baryon asymmetry. And that could give rise to the matter-antimatter asymmetry we see today. That's leptogenesis. The third possible pathway is this Affleck-Dyne scenario that involves supersymmetry. In supersymmetry, all of the particles of the Standard Model have unstable superpartner particles that correspond one-to-one to the normal ones, except they have higher masses, they also carry baryon and lepton numbers, but they also decay. Unlike the fields that are associated with quarks and leptons, the superpartner particles are predicted to be scalar fields. Right? If you're a fermion in normal standard model particles, quarks and leptons, then your superpartners are bosons. They're scalar fields. They have the advantage that early on in the highly energetic early universe, they can be put into excited states that leads to these significant asymmetries. So if supersymmetry is real, there's expected to be greatly increased amounts of baryon number violation and lepton number violation too, which will show up again near the electroweak scale at whatever scale supersymmetry is broken at. Hopefully, this will be something that the LHC can detect if it exists, but this could also give rise to a baryon-antibaryon asymmetry. And the last scenario is for grand unified theories. This is where at a very high energy scale you not only get the electromagnetic and the weak force unifying, but all the way up at these incredibly high energies that existed in the early universe, you can get the strong force unifying with them as well. This would mean if the strong force and the electroweak force unified together, that you would make these new super heavy particles. You would need them to be there that could decay into combinations of quarks and leptons, that you can get something that makes parts of a baryon, or parts of a lepton, or both, as long as the right combination of the two is conserved. Remember, we said you can't make baryons out of nothing, and you can't make leptons out of nothing. But if you have the baryon number minus the lepton number stay the same, you're okay. So imagine you have this new particle called an X and it can decay into two quarks, which means its B minus L number is two-thirds. It takes three quarks to make a baryon. So if you decay into two, your B minus L number is two-thirds. But then you could also decay into an anti-quark, which has a baryon number of minus a third, and an anti-lepton, which has a lepton number of minus one. Negative one third minus negative one is two thirds. So you could have both of those for this new x particle. Now there's a theorem that says whatever your particle can do, your antiparticle has to do the anti of that. So if the x can decay into two quarks or an anti-quark and an anti-lepton, then the anti-X is going to decay into two anti-quarks or a quark and a lepton. So These X bosons, these X particles, have a B minus L number of 2 thirds, and the anti-Xs have a B minus L number of minus 2 thirds. So far, everything's great. But the thing is, if we make Xs and anti-Xs an equal number, and they both decay the same way, you're not gonna make anything new. But we said there's one more condition, right? The decay part with the universe cools, that's the out of equilibrium part. This allowing these B minus L interactions, that's the baryon number violation. But we also have C and Cp violation, which says, sure, this X can do two things. It can decay to two quarks, or an anti-quark and an anti-lepton. The anti-X can do the opposite, but in different ratios. So maybe for every 10 X's you make, five of them will decay into two quarks and five will decay into an anti-quark and an anti-lepton. But maybe for the anti-X's, only four, if you make 10 of them, will decay into two anti-quarks and six will decay into a quark and an and, and a lepton. If this happens, if you make these 10 X's and these 10 anti-X's and they decay like that, then you're going to have something left over. You're going to have an extra three quarks left over and an extra lepton left over. In other words, you would have made both a baryon and a lepton asymmetry where there was none initially. This is so good that if that's how it actually worked, you would only need one out of every one million X's or anti-X's to have this asymmetric decay to give rise to the matter-antimatter asymmetry we observe in the universe today. We don't know which of these scenarios, if any, is the way that the matter-antimatter asymmetry actually worked in our universe, is the way it was actually made. But the fact that we're here, and that the laws of nature are as we know them to be tells us our understanding is incomplete. If the universe did in fact make more matter than antimatter when things were symmetric to start with, It must have happened in some way that goes beyond the physics we currently know. When you come up to the frontier of known physics and encounter a problem that clearly has a solution, but the current theory doesn't allow for a solution, this is one of the most exciting situations for any scientist to be in. For we stand here on the precipice of discovery with only our wits, ideas, and hypotheses to guide us. It will eventually, though, be observations and measurements that give us the long-awaited answers, no matter what our personal preferences may be. I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters for making this happen, including Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Rafael Wojciech, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud. Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Mark Bradshaw, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, jo- Jose Henrique, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Tascioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbida, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Richard White, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radilovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. See you next time.